Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, Mendelssohn family professor and director of American Studies, Hilary Hallett, talks about her book, Inventing the It Girl, how Eleanor Glynn created the modern romance and conquered early Hollywood, published by LiveWrite in July 2022. We recorded our interview on November 18th, 2022, via Zoom. Who is Eleanor Glynn? Eleanor Glynn is a British writer, a late Victorian British writer, who rose to fame after marrying into sort of the world of Downton Abbey um, as a sort of chronicler of that society and its manners and morals, and then published her sixth book in 1907, a scandalous bestseller called Three Weeks, which was called a sex novel, one of several, published in the early 20th century. And um, it was declared obscene and, you know, really turned her into a celebrity author, uh, really one of the very first women to become a celebrity author in her lifetime. And in that sort of capacity, she was eventually brought to early Hollywood for what I like to think of as her great third act, um, where she became a screenwriter, producer set dresser, <laughs> uh, influencer in, you know, the really the first incarnation of Hollywood. Your book is called Inventing the It Girl. What does it mean to be an it girl? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And it's not, I don't think it has just one answer. I think it's culturally and, you know, historically specific, of course. Eleanor Glynn sort of fastened that label onto the great flapper star actress, Clara Bow. Uh, who was really probably the defining sex symbol, female sex symbol anyway, of the 1920s. And so in that incarnation, you know, as Bo, who I do call the first it girl, because literally she was, it signifies a woman, a young woman usually, um, whose sort of personal glamour and style allows her to sort of break conventional norms of behavior for femininity, specifically around sexuality. It's licensing a more direct and aggressive and expressive version of female sexuality than most people had seen. You know, it's also important to note that it's it's the it girl, right? So it's a young woman, even though older women were sometimes called girls in this time. Um, but it is a, it is a younger woman, a woman who's not married, she's single, she's out on the town by herself. So that's sort of how the phrase first really burst into popular consciousness in the 1920s. But Eleanor Glynn arguably was the first it girl. I mean, her sister was a clothing designer and really dressed Eleanor in a way that most women of her standing might not be able to dress. Tell me about her sister and how her sister ties into this book. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm one of, well, actually one of four sisters, but I have one sister who's very close in age, like Eleanor was with her sister, Lucy. 
Um, I'm the older though, you know, Eleanor was the younger. And so she had this older, powerful sister who was not much older, but clearly a, she was the more outgoing of the two. And from a very young age, showed precocious talent in dressmaking abilities um, and really used Nell, as I call her, as she was called by most people that knew her, as her first mannequin. One of their only friends on this island, they grew up on an island called Jersey, not New Jersey, but the original Jersey, (laughs) right, Uh, which is an island off the coast of northern France. They grew up there and one of their only friends, you know, described them as always being the best dress girls in all of their society, although their stepfather kept them very short of money, right? And so early on, you know, they learned how much Lucy's ability to really um, make them appear more wealthy than they were, quite literally, that's part of it, right? It gave them a kind of glamour that that was associated with the upper classes, Um, which they were not really a part of, right? These are two daughters whose mother has remarried and the man is cheap and they have no dowry whatsoever. Um, And so actually this talent that Lucy has does provide them, they're witty, they're smart, they're charming, but if they weren't also (laughs) well-dressed, right, it probably wouldn't have worked. So, I mean, I guess the reason that I, I hesitate a little bit to call Eleanor the, the first it girl is because in her time period, you know, women were glamorous sexually until they were older, in part because a lot of the sexual shenanigans of the upper classes only could take place after marriage and children with safe people. There's a very famous portrait that's in the book, and she's like 50, and she's gorgeous. And yes, it's an oil painting. You know, it's it's a very mature, womanly beauty, not not a girl. So though I do think she obviously recognized and was a part of the shift towards society, glamorizing younger and younger women. You sort of mention people getting married and having kids and then stepping out of their marriage. And this was sort of the norm for her society. And so she was just writing about it and shedding a light on it. What price did she pay for outing this sin of society? I mean, she paid the price of essentially being ostracized from it, largely, not entirely, but largely. That was the novel Three Weeks, right, that features a heroine who is a married woman who picks a young man, unmarried, and sort of schools him, you know, in erotic arts so she can conceive their love child (laughs) eventually, right? So that's a little dramatic, but it was also common for people to have younger children, after the air and the spare that were not necessarily their, you know, marital partner's child. And so none of this, as you're saying, right, none of this was out of the norm for aristocratic circles in in most countries. Queen Victoria had had put a bit of a damper on it in Britain because she personally was not that way at all. But she groused continually still about most of the British aristocrats being that way. She didn't think it would get such a shocked reaction, right, because She knew how common it was. And in fact, she was one of the few women that had not acted on that. Um, She'd written about it, but not actually followed through with it. She was known as a great flirt, but did not actually follow through until she met Curzon, as far as I could tell anyway. It was really something that made her burn, you know, or Cecil Beaton says that too. You know, he, he writes a burning, you know, decades later for the sort of hypocrisy, the appalling hypocrisy of Edwardian society for ostracizing her, for describing in a fictional character, 
behaviors, which in actuality, many of them practiced. Then she kept writing. She was not at all afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. She She wasn't wasn't afraid of being ostracized. What propelled her to continue writing? If she's willing to embrace sort of being scandalous, which she was, she learned that young, right? Most women that were famous were slightly scandalous, right? Queen Victoria was an anomaly in that regard because most women in the public eye were in the performing arts of one kind or another usually. I loved writing about her creating this literary persona, which really only men had done, like Mark Twain and Dickens, when she goes on her first big book tour to America after three weeks. And it's like part her Tiger Queen heroine, right? This incredibly seductive European French speaking woman, which she knew intimately that and could, you know, she was French speaking. And then part the very proper British lady married to an English squire with two daughters living in Essex. And, you know, it it worked like American press and public ate it up. And so even though people like Anthony Constock had the novel banned and branded obscene, you know, that just added to its publicity and made it sell more. Yeah. So that's the other price that she paid. Actually, you know, was was a freedom that kind of allowed her to purchase this much, much bigger public role. When she was around her husband, she often had pain in her sides and had major health problems. What was that all about? Yeah, that was, those were some interesting um, and really one of the early chapters in sickness and in health. That chapter was made me quite depressed writing it. Some of that was about postpartum depression, which no one knew really what it was. Some, um, you know, and certainly, you know, with her second child, when she had another girl, when she knew her husband really desperately wanted an heir. She was never labeled an hysteric, as I write, but she was labeled what was called then a neurasthenic, which essentially we would now call that person suffering from anxiety and depression, right? Someone whose nerves have gotten the better of them and to some extent incapacitated them physically. You know, and in some ways this is at a time, I mean, the whole hysteria thing can be extremely sexist and did not make women better, right? The treatments were not efficacious. For neurasthenics, it's not quite as bad, right? Because especially where she was getting her treatments, like in the Mediterranean, not New England, you know, where there was a kind of gentler version to it. And so um, it allowed her distance from her husband. It allowed her, you know, sort of distance from her children because she clearly wasn't a naturally maternal woman. Her mother was not. She was not really raised by her mother, you know, because her mother, you know, had lost her first husband and had just been sort of incapacitated by that grief when her two little girls were just babies, really. You know, they've been raised by their very stern grandmother. So Eleanor, you know, a lot of it, I do think, you know, was depression about childbearing, the disappointment of sex with her husband. They were clearly sexually mismatched. Their interests were mismatched, right? Those things often go together. It wasn't just sexually. They just like, they had no common interests. And so then unsurprisingly, sexually, they were also very mismatched. And that was clear, you know, and here she was, she did have a lot of romantic ideas. She had turned down other, she had had a few other proposals from, you know, men that she had turned down and she had hopes of Clayton being a romantic partner. And that was all just very quickly clear that that was not going to happen. So, you know, really, I would say those pains, and that's what she was eventually told by an early version of a psychiatrist, you know, who said, 
basically your marriage is making you unhappy and you have to keep too much of who you are bottled up inside. And this kind of incredible sentence, supposedly he said to her that she had to sort of release the siren within. She traveled to far flung places like Egypt and Rome. And uh, she went to San Francisco. She went to, to Russia and then yeah. she went to these like retreats all over. So to what extent did you trace her travels in your research? Oh, I wish I could have even done even more. Um, I did as much as I could with, I had two young children myself while I was writing this book, right? And so they did get schlepped on a few summers to various places. So, you know, I certainly retraced all of her steps, steps in Britain, um, in England and in Wales. The houses are still there. Uh, it was quite funny when I was actually the first summer I was there researching it. Um, oh my gosh, what's his name? The pop star Rod Stewart bought the original Glen Estate because it was up for sale. They had like 50 photos of what it looks like now on the inside, right? Because it was up for sale. Um, I went to where she was raised, Jersey, uh, which I thought was really important. And it was, so I'm very glad I did that. I, you know, spent time in Paris the south of France, I, you know, I did a, that sort of world. Um, I'd already been to Italy, and so I knew Italy. The two places I didn't go that I really wanted to go, because Eleanor, of course, had this rule, never write about places unseen. And it was one of her few rules about writing. And I think it in some ways allowed her to justify all of her incredible travel. <laughs> because if that was also clearly one of her antidotes to depression and anxiety, right? Um, whenever she was feeling stressed out by her family life, she would just go on one of these fabulous trips. I didn't go to Cairo, didn't go to Egypt, didn't go to Russia. She formed this friendship with really the premier hostess of the last Romanov court right before the revolution. And so she was writing, she wrote a whole book set there, you know, and spent several months there living with this grand duchess. Didn't go there. I've been all over America. I've been to every state but two. I mean, at times your writing makes us feel like you went there. Well, so I did that. Like with Cairo, I felt it was really, really important, especially since that was such a pivotal place in her imagination and in her, you know, intellectual life, the what it stimulated and allowed her to kind of free and tap into. I was working at the Coleman Center, Center for Writers and Scholars. You know, it's such an amazing place to work. And they had lots of old maps of Cairo in the years that she was visiting it, lots of travelogues and, you know, the British uh, cook's travel guides from those years. And this is always true, but I think it's some places it's even more true. The Cairo that she visited in like 1900, 1901, 1902, that's like totally gone. Like that is swallowed up. There's a picture in there of the Sphinx and the Sphinx that she saw is not the Sphinx that we see today. So to your exactly. point, yeah. Speaking of pictures, how did you decide which ones to include in this biography? Because you include <sighs> a whole ton of them throughout. And she was beautiful as a young girl, but I noticed that she got even more gorgeous as she aged. I totally agree, 100%. I had certainly done a lot of photo research. And then there's, an, as you know, I'm sure, an incredible number of things now growing every minute on the web. Many of which, though, you can't track to a provenance that gives you a high quality enough image. Norton was great. Live Right was great. They told me that I could use as many pictures as I wanted. It almost, but that almost like killed me, 
right? Because I used a lot of money, my research money, my own money. They wouldn't pay for it, but I could do it. And they would pay for it in the production, of course, which is paying for it. So I, and I had to hire an assistant because I, it was during the semester, blah, blah, blah. I, it was a combination of wanting images that I felt like really conveyed something that absent them, no matter how well I tried with my words, you wouldn't fully get. Um, And it was also, as you're saying, I wanted people to see her change over the course of her life because her most amazing production was herself. You know, she was so attuned to how she presented herself to cameras long before she went to Hollywood starting with her sister, right? But then, you know, as a society, beauty first, you know, just her entire life. So I, it, it was very important to me to show visually that progression, that development, and then also to show some of the key figures in her life because she knew so many interesting people. You know, I can describe them, but it's better to also see what these late British Empire <laughs> dudes look like, you know? It's a very different look that some Americans, especially, I mean, yeah, everybody watched out in Abbey. You don't want to assume that people really know. Or like you said, that Sphinx, I tried to describe what she saw in the text, but the images still convey something that I can't with words. What's your relationship with Eleanor Glynn's descendants? Well, that's been complicated, like a lot of biographers. I, I hate to say it. Um So on the one hand, without their generosity, you know, I would not have written the book. Eleanor has a, an archive at Reading University and it's, it's a big archive, but after working in it for no more than a week, I was aware that it would not allow me to write the kind of biography I wanted because it was essentially as if someone had almost vacuumed out everything personal. It was very much a professional archive. Her daughter, Juliet, had put it together after her death and donated the materials. And so I was like, I don't want to write a book, a biography about a woman that's only about her professional life. So, you know, and I'd gone to the other archives and I did, I had found some other stuff, but I knew that if I didn't get more access to her interior life, that I wasn't going to do it. And so I started writing to her descendants literally. So we were, we were living in Oxford that summer for two months Two weeks before we were to leave to come back to New York, right before the semester started, I got an email response finally from one of them. And I got a few emails and I met with people, but they didn't know. But they did say, yeah, there was this, you know, and in Wales, I think. And But then two weeks before we're leaving, I get this response from um, one of her great granddaughters saying, I have the trunk that you've been looking for and it's safe in Wales. And I live in London and, you know, where are you? I had said I was in Oxford. Can you come down from Oxford or up? I can't remember which direction it is. I have a terrible sense of direction. Can you come from Oxford to London? <laughs> you can see it. So um, that's what happened. Uh, my The other complication was that my husband had just, the day I got this email, he caught chicken pox. And so he was quite sick for a couple of weeks. And as I mentioned, we had these two little kids. So it was a crazy time, but I went down for a couple days and literally 12 hour days photographing everything in her apartment. Okay. But what was in it? There had clearly been a Colleen, even of that. And that might've been done by Eleanor or it might've been done by Juliet. 
who decided that she wanted to get rid of some stuff, but wanted to save some stuff. I don't know. Or who knows? I don't know who did it. There was also a fire, a very big fire in Wales. And so some things could have been destroyed. I should say that. But what it contained were a very weird assemblage of stuff really spanning almost her entire life, starting with a few journals from her very earliest years in France. And these were the journals that she had used to base her earliest novels on. Um, And so they were descriptions of country house parties with these French relations in France descriptions of things she was doing, some stabs at some short stories that she probably first wrote. So she's in her early 20s. There were, you know, I don't know how many, at least a thousand, probably five to 15 page letters to her mother. She wrote her mother all the time when she was traveling and when she lived in, and and especially when she lived in Los Angeles, that decade in Hollywood, you know, her mother outlived Lucy. Her mother lived to be 96. And so she's writing to her mother in all these very, very long letters. And so that was great for the Hollywood years, especially. There were some other journals that she saved, you know, maybe five or six of them out of probably what were dozens. One was about her love affair with George Curzon. So that was great. You know, there were lots of, there were some letters around Clayton between his family and, you know, the death of Clayton that were really, really helpful. And there were letters from from the Romanoff court, a lot of letters. Once she starts traveling a lot, so after three weeks, when she really does become this celebrity, and and now I, I don't think I've mentioned this, but the other reason she does this, of course, is for the money. She is the sole support of her family by 1907. Let's talk about Clayton for a second. What's up with this dude? So honestly, I think he was a fairly typical dude for his time and place. You know, this is the moment when the gentry, many, many people in the gentry class and way higher up with a lot more money than Clayton started with are losing their estates. You know, this is how all those great starts become part of the National Trust in Britain, or they're turning them into part-time tourist parks like, again, many men of his class. And it, again, one of the letters from his brother-in-law, I think, or when he died, said, you know, Clayton was always such a charming, good-looking, sporting something, you know, said some great things about him, but always so wasteful and extravagant. I remember how he got into debt as early as his Oxford days. And so he was just that, you know, heir who never learned to work at all, never learned to economize at all, ran in a class with people who had a lot more money than him, really, kept up with them, and so spent more than he had and had been quietly auctioning off his patrimony, unbeknownst to her, as far as I can tell. Although, you know, a a sharper-eyed person or somebody who wanted to know would probably notice things like, why did we never live in the Georgian manor? Why did we live in the more modest house on the estate? And that's right at the moment, actually, when she does realize, because the accountant is like, you're out of money. Her books are now what will right. fund. She, she becomes very prolific at that point. And she starts writing the sensational, more sensational sex novels sell even more than her other books, which were successful, but these are even more. 
what led you to write this book? In other words, what questions were you trying to answer at the outset? And, and how did you come across her? My interest in her goes all the way back to my dissertation, because my first book was about the sexual politics surrounding the founding of early Hollywood. Early on when I was doing research, I was actually at the, what is it that, the Harry Ransom Center at UT Austin, doing research on Gloria Swanson, very famous actress, uh, producer of the 20s. And she loves this woman named Eleanor Glenn. I'm like, who is this woman, Eleanor Glenn? So I go to Swanson's autobiography, which is a really great autobiography if you haven't read it. It's called Swanson on Swanson. And there I find this incredibly long detailed description, even more than I had just the original traces in the archive of letters. She credits Glenn in her autobiography, essentially, with teaching her to be the screen's first glamour queen and describes in great detail how she taught her to dress and walk and talk and deal with the press and present her sexuality and make love on screen and all of it. So then I go to the secondary literature and she's barely mentioned at all. This would have been like in the 90s, late 90s, when I was working on my dissertation, I guess. No, I guess in the early 2000s. What am I saying? The early 2000s. There's really been an explosion in feminist film history about the silent era in the last 15, 20 years. But it was just starting, hardly started at all. It was starting while I was working on my dissertation. And so most of the secondary sources still didn't really pay much attention to women in early Hollywood at all. And when they mentioned Glenn, it was usually to describe her with some disdain, like this woman was a weirdo, bright red hair and wore, you know, weird clothes and Cecil B. DeMille, director, famous director, all, you know, saying that she deserves more credit for inventing sex appeal than him. So the primary, the, the people, male and female of all kinds, Chaplin. Oh, I loved her. She was a little overwhelming at first, but, <laughs> but she was really funny and we got along great. But what was I saying? So she took over a chapter of my dissertation and my advisor, David Nassau, was like, there's too much Eleanor Glenn in this. And you, she seems really fascinating, but you need to kind of take some of this out. Maybe you could write a biography of her later if you want <laughs> <laughs> and that was really David's suggestion that sort of like stuck in my head. And then flash forward, once I finished the dissertation, turned it into my first book, Go West, Young Women. Then I'm like, okay, second project. That's why we were in England to see whether or not, and my husband is a British historian, so he wanted to go to England anyway. He was, you know, dying and he had gone to Oxford for graduate school. So loved the idea of living there for the summer um, and getting to spend time there again. So that's that's how I ended up in England for that summer, trying to see then, you know, like 10 years later or something, if I could write the book. So what was your reading and writing process like? First, it was figuring out what kinds of sources were available. And the summer that I spent doing that, because it was, I knew I only really had two months. I wasn't able, it was the first time I had done research this way where I really wasn't able to read a lot of the primary material that I was collecting. I was photographing it because I was trying to collect a lot. This was partially having young kids too. You know, you become less mobile. So I knew I basically needed to vacuum certain archives if I was able to find them up that summer and bring them back to New York where I could work on them over, you know, at my leisure more, you know, in New York. And that is what I did. You know, the hardest thing as an academic, you know, because I was still trying to get tenure for a lot of this book, I had to write an academic article. I had to do some other things for that process. 
My first leave year, honestly, I spent maybe two, three years after that summer. I had a year of leave, and I literally spent the whole year reading my archive. And I had been reading secondary sources and other things in between that. And then I wrote a very detailed proposal where I kind of mapped out the book. But a lot of what that proposal was, was me digesting the research that I had done, that I had vacuumed. The reason that I was very fascinated by this woman and came back to her 10 years after I first met her to write my second book about her was because she illustrated something so powerfully that I tried to show in my first book in some ways, right, which is that women had this enormously important and influential role in many of the early mass culture industries, you know, from fiction to film to music, and really helped pioneer them, helped kind of set up a lot of their dominant, what we call tropes and archetypes and stereotypes, their visual language and grammar. And yet it's really only been recently that that fact, I feel like historians in in a variety of fields are trying to really put forward. And it was really female novelists like Glenn that were doing that before. And because the kinds of books that they wrote were not written into the canon, their influence, that's partially why their influence is, you know, has not been recognized, right? There's always, that's my chapter in the book, Trash. There's kind of a labeling of this genre, just in general, the romance genre, again, until recently, I think that's being challenged, um, finally. But for the entire 20th century, it's the best-selling genre of the 20th century. And, you know, it's like this little side thing that's embarrassing some for some reason to mainstream critics or bookstores or, you know, for a long time, the New York Times book review or, you know what I'm saying? And so I wanted to write about her because her life showed that so powerfully. And also just because I could tell that she had, you know, a life that was more interesting in many ways than the characters in her books. And so I just was fascinated by this, you know, this woman. That was Mendelssohn Family Professor and Director of American Studies, Hilary Hallett, talking with bio member Jenny Skoog about her book, Inventing the It Girl, How Eleanor Glynn Created the Modern Romance and Conquered Early Hollywood. It was published by Live Right in July 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on November 18th, 2022. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening.